The sermon passage today will be from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 15. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Well, what do you think of so far? Can you see me? We spent about six hours this morning setting up the spotlight, so give or take five hours. So uh, We continue on this morning in our study in the book of Exodus. Exodus was written most likely by Moses to recount the story of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt about 3,400 years ago. The word Exodus, if you might remember, means departure. So this book is all about one great departure. So after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God has led Israel. They've departed in a great exodus from Pharaoh's rule. God has worked signs and wonders called the ten plagues that we discussed months ago. And he's used those to judge Egypt and to bring Israel out to show his glory both in the judgment of his enemies and the salvation of his people. And over and over again now, he's, he's promised to lead them to Canaan, to the promised land, to this new land where they will live under his rule. So uh, when we first started the book of Exodus uh, a year and a half ago, and we had took breaks throughout that, uh, we sh- showed that kind of the, the first... 18 chapters of Exodus kind of emphasize Yahweh, that personal name for God, to his people Israel. Yahweh, so uh, Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your English translations. Yahweh is Savior. Yahweh is Deliverer. And now in chapters 19 and following, we're going to see him primarily as Yahweh as Ruler, giving law to his people so they can live joyfully under his reign, not the reign of of Pharaoh. So now at the halfway point of this book, we come to Sinai, to this, to this mountain where God had originally met Moses at the burning bush, at least in that region. And, 
And it's to this place now that they come and God speaks to his assembled people and gives them his law, his, his Ten Commandments. This is part of his covenant with them, his ongoing covenant that began with Abraham is kind of proceeding sequentially. And it will go through Moses and then through David and, and then ultimately come through Christ. He is making them his people and he's going to be their God. So they used to serve Pharaoh. Now they will serve their perfect king, Yahweh. And we're going to mention this every time we go through these Ten Commandments, and we're almost done, but uh, bear with me one more time. It's always important to think about how, as Christians, we come to the law, because it's easy to come to the law and just say, this is what I must do to earn God's favor. That is not how, as Christians, we approach the law. We approach the Ten Commandments through Trinitarian glasses. So the God of the Bible has revealed to himself, to us, his people, as a trinity, as three persons, yet one God. So the, the persons of the trinity are God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so as we come to this law, we come to see each of those persons of the Godhead more clearly. We come to see the character of God the Father, his holiness, his mercy. And we come to see the salvation of God the Son who perfectly kept this law for us so we could be saved through him. And then we come to see the new life that we have through God the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live not, no longer under this law, bound by this law, but free to actually live out the, the heart of this law in the new life we have in Jesus. This law is a guide to help us follow what we're all too eager to follow as those who have been given new hearts, however feebly. And that is the law, the will, the character of our God. So we come to this morning to the passage Kevin has just read for us from the Eighth Commandment, You Shall Not Steal. And I, uh, I went through about 12 different introductions, as an exaggeration, but getting there to this sermon. That's why I didn't have an introduction, because nothing worked. Because I don't know what you think about stealing, but whenever I think about stealing, so many thoughts come into my head. I think of a wide range of things. I think of uh, Ocean's Eleven and the great casino heist, and then I think of shoplifting and those cameras in grocery stores. And I, like, and actually, what God's saying here is covers all of those things, and even more. Here, God tells his people that because of who he is, they must not steal. Why? Three things to think about stealing this morning. First, stealing reveals. Second, stealing harms. And third, stealing condemns. Stealing reveals. Stealing harms. Stealing condemns. So first, stealing reveals. So in each of our studies in these Ten Commandments, we've seen Yahweh does not want his people to, to merely follow his commandments simply for the sake of displaying an appearance of goodness and morality. He's not giving them his law just to keep them in line. No, he's giving them his law to reveal himself to them, to reveal his character to them, 
to remind them how he's designed them to live and flourish under his rule. And so as Israel, as we look at this perfect character of God displayed in these commandments, we see that perfect character, we're awed by it, and we cannot escape then looking inward. And in the face of the perfect, perfect law of God, seeing the imperfection of our hearts. Stealing is not just an outward rule. Stealing reveals what's inside. That's always what God's law does. It cuts deep. God cares about our hearts. So what does stealing reveal? Well, it reveals what's inside, and what's inside is greed. We want more. We need more. Whether it's time or money or possessions or fame, we, we need more. The very first commandment was clear. You shall have no other gods before me. But this commandment now comes along and calls our mind to one of the gods we have set before Yahweh. One of the biggest ones and one of the ones easiest to cover up. Desmond Alexander, a, a scholar on, on Exodus, has put it bluntly, greed is a form of idolatry. Think about it. Greed is setting another god before the god of Israel, and that god is the god of money. I think even more broadly, we might say that that god, that greed is worshiping the god of more, more, more. We're convinced that the more we get, the more we'll be happy. The more money we stockpile, the more comfort will come, the more ease will be ours, the more joy we'll embrace. The more wealth we invest, the more we achieve, the more security we'll find, the more confidence we'll have. We need more. And if we can't get it, we'll, we'll take it anyway. It's the very root of our sin, isn't it? We've seen this repeatedly throughout Exodus. We want to be God. We want to decide what will make us happy. We will not, in our sin, submit to the way our Creator has designed us. And, and so we stockpile and we, we grasp and claw after more and more. And we end up fueling ourselves with what will only make us hungrier. Someone has said it's like drinking salt water, right? The more you drink, the more you think you're quenched and the more thirsty you become. Sin promises everything and leaves with us with nothing. It always does. But we keep pursuing it. Church family, we are irrational creatures. Sin, by its nature, is irrational. It's trying to live life in a world that's been designed by a creator by rebelling against that creator. It'll never work. Greed is just another irrational rebellion against Yahweh. It won't satisfy. We'll end up losing everything as we strain for everything. One of Aesop's fables is called the dog and his reflection. It goes like this. A, a dog to whom the butcher had thrown a bone was hurrying home with his prize as fast as he could go. As he crossed a narrow footbridge, he happened to look down and saw himself reflected in the quiet water as if in a mirror. 
But the greedy dog thought he saw a, a real dog carrying a bone much bigger than his own. If he had stopped to think, he would have known better, but instead of thinking, he dropped his bone and sprang at the dog in the river, only to find himself swimming for dear life to reach the shore. At last, he managed to scramble out, and as he stood sadly thinking about the good bone he had lost, he realized what a stupid dog he had been. The moral of the story is it is very foolish to be greedy. It's easy to see the irrationality of the dog's behavior. I mean, he's an animal. We don't stoop to that level. Or do we? Church, I think this describes us to a T. This is you. This is me. This is us in our greed. By forsaking God's design that makes us truly human, we do become like animals, clawing after what we think will give us more. We forsake what we have to gain more, and we end up losing it all. This eighth commandment reveals greedy hearts. And even more, it reveals how we view God. Greed reveals that we really don't believe he's the treasure we need. We need more than him. We'll see more of this in the 10th commandment on coveting in a few weeks. We're discontent. We, we need more. God's not enough. At, his, at its root, our greed, our idolatry, our stealing is stealing from God. Robbing God. It, it takes the glory that should be his, the position of glory that should be his, and seeks to unseat him and place ourselves in his place. We're rebels against him. We're glory thieves. And that deepest sin of our hearts is just manifested in stealing what belongs to others so we can glory in ourselves. Brothers and sisters, stealing reveals and it's not good. Secondly, stealing harms. So Joe read for us earlier from Romans 13. And there the Apostle Paul comments on the Ten Commandments, including this one. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. We looked at that last week. You shall not commit murder. We looked at that two weeks ago. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment, he says, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is showing us that stealing loves self, not others. Stealing harms those made in God's image. So we saw a few weeks ago that each one of us is made in God's image. We thought about it more deeply there, but to summarize what it means to be made in God's image most basically is that we have been set on this earth as his sort of vice regents to exercise his dominion to bring him glory. That's a task that's been given to human beings alone. Genesis 1. God has generously given us this task, this great mission that kind of, kind of gives 
passion to our lives that bring him praise. And stealing is like a big roadblock in that mission. Stealing is anti-image of God. Think about it. Stealing doesn't only promote ourselves in the place of God, it harms those that he's created to bring him glory. Again, it's robbing him of glory by harming those made in his image. Stealing harms others to promote ourselves. There are a lot of ways we could apply this commandment to our Northern Virginia lives. I I thought of just a few. You could think of others. One of the reasons these commandments are so terse and brief is to allow us to use our imagination to search our hearts. There are many examples, but perhaps you've been tempted to be slightly squishy on your tax returns. And that's not just dishonesty, according to Paul. That's a failure to love others as yourself. See, even the smallest theft is not, as one scholar says, victimless. There's always someone who will pay. You know that blue screen that shines before you watch a movie and it says, piracy is not a victimless crime? They took that from Exodus 20.15. No, they didn't. But all truth is God's truth. Think of your time at work. Do you waste it? Do you spend chunks of paid time on the clock in personal matters? That's a failure, not just in honesty, but in loving your employer, your coworkers, as you love yourself. Have you ever downloaded pirated music or movies? That's a failure to love that artist, that actor, as you love yourself. Have you ever been tempted to plagiarize as you're writing a paper, if you're a student, or as you're writing a memo, if you're an employee at a law firm or something, to to pass off somebody else's ideas as your own and receive the praise that should be theirs? Do you see how you are sinning against not loving the original author of that work? Church, this commandment, these commandments are summed up in love. Love for neighbor, love for each other. So the opposite, listen, the opposite of stealing is not, I keep my stuff, you keep your stuff, hands off. The opposite of stealing is love. The opposite of harming your neighbor is loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And we're really good at loving ourselves. We're we're pros at this. Think about the ways you strategize and, and develop plans every day almost every hour, to give yourself joy, to spark joy in yourself. So if you're struggling with how to love others, if you're in the, our church body and you're like, I, I'm, I'm just struggling with how to like show love to other people, a great first question to ask yourself is, how do I love myself? And I'll give you plenty of ideas. I think one of the ways we love ourselves is by caring for our needs. We feed ourselves. We clothe ourselves. 
We entertain ourselves. We care for our feelings when they become hurt or offended. We go out of our way to encourage and build up ourselves. We're we're extremely sensitive to our mental health, to our physical health, to our emotional needs. Those things consume us. How about those around us? Do we use those around us or do we love those around us? Another way we love ourselves is by looking out for dangers or threats to our safety, to our happiness, to our security. So, so we know ourselves well, and we know where kind of our weak spots are. We know how to guard against things that could bring harm. How about those around us? Do we get to know fellow members in this church well enough to know where they're going to be in danger spiritually? where they might be harmed. God's law here is not merely restrictive, telling us what we must not do. God's law here is freeing. It's freeing us to love others, to flourish in the design God has given us to live out. Stealing is contrary to loving God and neighbor. And that's not merely a democratic principle of private property. It's a divine principle of love. Stealing reveals. Stealing harms. Final point, stealing condemns. So this this worship of more, this idolatry of greed, this harming of neighbor, this setting ourselves up in the place of God, this is the posture of our heart in our sin. Each one of us. We've broken this law again and again and again. We haven't loved others as ourselves. We've taken things that don't belong to us. We have robbed God of his glory. And church, this thievery condemns us. This isn't a respectable sin. Greed and idolatry seeks to undermine God's rule in our lives. And so is rebellion against him and so deserves death. stealing shouts out the news that we desperately want to keep silent that God simply isn't our greatest treasure that we must supplant him with with more wealth or more stuff to unseat him as lord of our lives so stealing no stealing is no small sin that's what these commandments do to us church they open us up They they lead us to the the wonder of the character of God, but that road then descends into despair. That we're never going to be able to live like that. I think the more and more we focus on these commandments, even this one, which might seem a little bit more austere, we'll see that we haven't only broken this commandment, we have torn it in two and stomped it into the ground. Yet in God's mercy, these commandments don't just lead us into a valley of despair. They lead us from the glory, the the mountain of the glory of the character of God revealed in the law, down into the valley of despair that we could never, never live according to that law, and then up again to the foot of the cross. 
See, when we were lost in our sin, Jesus took on himself every single thing we had done in disobedience to this command. He took it and bore the wrath of God rightly aimed at us. He gave us his perfect righteousness. I know we say this every week, but but think about this. He did this so that we would get what he deserved, and he would get what we deserved. What love. In Matthew's gospel, we read how Jesus was crucified. There was a place called Golgotha. Listen to how Matthew writes. He says, and when they had crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. Church, Jesus was crucified with thieves, with those who steal. And in that moment, we see him bearing our sin on himself, identifying himself with thieves like you and me so we could be saved. So that death he was experiencing would never, ever be ours. On the cross, Jesus took our sin on his shoulders, our glory-robbing, money-grabbing, stealing hearts, and he became sin for us. I love how one author puts it. He says, it is a well-known fact that Christ was crucified between two thieves. But as far as God's justice was concerned, there were really three thieves on the cross that day. Two who died for their own crimes and one who took our sins upon himself. Church, see Jesus on the cross with your sins on him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, welcome. You know, there's many other places you could rather be this morning prepping for the game later on, but you're here. Just so you know, though, we haven't come together this morning as Christians to congratulate ourselves on how well we've, uh, we've obeyed this commandment and how we haven't stolen anything too crazy this past week except for that, that pen on our boss's desk or something. I know oftentimes church can feel like that. I, it can feel like a place for holier-than-thou folks who have come together to remind ourselves how great we are, to give ourselves sort of spiritual pats on the back. Just to be clear, that's not why we're here at all. If that's why you're here, hopefully this place feels uncomfortable for you. We come here to sit under the judgment of God's word and to allow it to pierce into our very souls to realize that we've broken this command again and again, even without realizing it. To realize that we're much worse than me petty thieves. We have robbed God, setting ourselves up in his place, deserving his judgment. And so no, 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 we don't come to remind ourselves how we've done a pretty good job with this eighth commandment. We come to see how this eighth commandment points us to our utter need for salvation. We come this morning to see Christ, to remember his death in our place, to put our hope in him. And that hope can be yours. 
if you will repent of your sin and place your trust in Jesus bearing your sin in your place, letting go of any way you can earn God's favor on your own, putting all your eggs in that basket of Jesus's work for you, you will be saved. Your judgment will fall not on you, but on the sinless son of God. If you have questions about that, you can talk to somebody sitting next to you. You can talk to somebody who's sitting up here. You can talk to me. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to find freedom and forgiveness in Christ. And dear beloved church family, do you see how the rich salvation we have in Jesus sets us free to give, not to steal? Nowhere in Scripture is it more clearly and plainly put as in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul writes, For you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Tim Chester puts it plainly in his book on Exodus. He says, Jesus came to give, not take not steal. Do you see that? Do you see that Jesus gave all so we could be his? How he gave up his rights to majesty in heaven and came and clothed himself with our weaknesses to save glory thieves like you and me so we could really glorify him forever. In Christ, we are rich. In Christ, we have everything we need. We have all wealth, and no one can take that away from us. So remember what Paul says in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And again, in Ephesians 2, verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show us what? The immeasurable riches of his glory and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Christians are set free not to steal, not to clamber and grasp for more because we already have everything. When we did not love him, when we harmed those around us, Christ gave up his throne and gave his life for us. So the opposite of stealing according to the cross, is love. A love seen most spectacularly in our Savior. Jesus redeems us from sin. He overturns our death sentence and takes it on himself. So church, as those saved by this infinite love, as those having been showered with these immeasurable riches, how must we then respond? We respond with that same sort of love towards others. We're generous. So in light of the gospel, are you generous, church? In light of the gospel that has saved you at infinite cost to our Savior, do you strategize how to sacrificially, in a Christ-like way, give of your money, your time, your possessions for the good of others? Church, we're called to, to mimic Jesus to mimic our Savior by not being primarily those who take, but those 
who give out of the abundance we've been given. And let me just encourage you as your pastor that I see this generosity in our congregation all the time. I, I see some of you serving regularly at Tree of Life, ministering joyfully to those who have less than you. I see others of you serving at our events at the Main Street Commons Apartments, wanting to bless and love sacrificially the children in that community. I see many of you giving up your valuable time to help folks move, to prepare a meal for a member in a difficult season of life. I I see you, not always, because you're obeying Christ's command to keep it silent and secret, but I know and I feel and I see you pouring out your hearts in prayer for this church and this community. I see you not taking refuge in your homes, but opening up your homes as God's gift to those around you. I see you having concern about our community and those in need. I loved when one of you came to me a few weeks ago and said, is there anybody in the church who's not earning a paycheck during the government shutdown right now? What can we do to help? This is the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in us, and may it increase. May we be generous as God in Christ has been generous with us. Church, as the image of Christ is matured in us, it will be evidenced in how we use our money, our time, our possessions, how we treat our stuff. It will be evidenced in our generosity. In his book on the Ten Commandments, the author Phil Riken shares what an older man, Jerry Bridges, some of you have read his books, what Jerry Bridges had taught on the Christian posture towards possessions. And I love what he says. He says, there are three basic attitudes the Christian has towards his possessions. The first says, what's yours is mine. I'll take it. This is the attitude of the thief. The second says, what's mine is mine. I'll keep it. Since we're selfish by nature, this is the attitude that most people have most of the time. But the third attitude, the godly attitude, the gospel attitude says, what's mine is God's, so I'll share it. Loudon Valley Baptist Church, may that generous gospel love increasingly characterize us as we share Christ's love with those around us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a generous God. A God who did not leave us in our sin, but pursued us when we despised your glory. Lord, we pray for any here who do not know your salvation. That you would deliver them from the God of more. And bring them to you who will always fully sufficiently satisfy all their needs. We pray for those in our church family here present who are struggling with greed. Lord, may not, that not be a, a sin we keep hidden or are so ashamed of that we don't confess it to others, but that we would see that greed placed on the shoulders of Christ and that would free us to share it with others. Ask them for help. Convict us. Call us to the higher love of neighbor through Christ.
And we pray for us as a church family that we would be again overwhelmed at the love you have displayed on the cross and and give our lives again in worship to our great Savior, just like that thief did on the cross. Lord, help us now as we sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.